cliffcentral.com. Well, Michal Oshman is my guest. She's a seasoned leader in tech, finance, and advertising. She's been driving culture and leadership at TikTok and Meta. They're not small companies. Passionate about people and culture, she blends spirituality and leadership principles to create compassionate workplaces. As the best-selling author and TEDx speaker, she also shares insights on company culture, growth, and career success. Her journey as a mother of four shapes her values, fostering lifelong learning and inspiring healthy, high-performing organizations. That is an incredible CV. Michal, very nice to have you here. You're a terrific guest because before I've even had to ask you anything, you're already like, what's going on here? And you're doing what you've done and working for the companies you've worked with. Uh, that's a very high level of performance that's required there. And it's something that I don't think a lot of people get. Mm. I don't think a lot of people understand how competitive, how insane, how um, how very complex those organizations are. You're dealing with global audiences and billions of people. Yes. Um, it must be there's a lot of pressure there. I get asked this a lot, actually, more recently. Um, and to be honest, every time I get asked that, I kind of pause and I think, and it, it, I think the word that you used, which is complex, yeah. um, is, so, is so spot on. It's big. Uh, when I joined Facebook, I think it was just after they IPO'd, there was a bit of a um, uh, kind of challenging time, I think, when they were thinking, how will they monetize from mobile? This to you now sounds like ancient history, right? No, but no, no, I love this. Go it on. did happen. This is good to um, remind ourselves. It's not that <laughs> yeah, long ago. It's not that long ago. You know, just IPOing, kind of having the monetization um, challenge and then really starting to rise. And I joined... Um, Facebook, because I really believed in the company's mission back then, which is connecting the world and making the world smaller by building communities. And I found that fascinating, especially as someone who is originally from Israel, uh, moving to, I moved to London 20 years ago. I got married. We got married in a week after we arrived uh, to London. And whoever's married can maybe relate um, to the fact that sometimes the first year and maybe the years after can be slightly challenging, right? Absolutely. Like the, life is different. Um so I thought how fascinating it is that there's a company that creates communities because when I joined, when I moved to London, I felt really lonely. My husband went to London to a business school mm -hmm. and I had it to start my life all over again at the age, I think, of 29. If I had a group there to join, if I had people to say Israelis in London, boom, I would already have something. So these big companies often have big missions, yeah. but then they have to scale anything they do and make it, as you said, global. And that's what I learned really, I think at Facebook and TikTok, when you have a brilliant idea or platform or mission, and then you want to scale it and you want to make it relevant in any place in the world to any person. That's what I find really fascinating. I want to get into culture in just a moment or two, because it's become one of those things. It's almost a bit of a hackneyed phrase now. If people say, oh, our company culture is whatever, and actually there's no culture at all. Yeah. Or they're, they're, they're trying to pretend that they have a culture because they've heard it's important to have one. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we'll get into that in a second. But I heard the most fascinating thing, and I want your thoughts on this. Um, somebody said to me the other day, when they invented the printing press in Europe in the 1500s, 1600s, and it, it immediately opened up the opportunity for so many people to communicate in ways that weren't available to them before – in their common language instead of only in Latin illuminated manuscripts and that kind of thing. And obviously at the beginning of that process, everyone was hugely excited, Martin Luther most especially. You know, now we could all read these texts that before were only for the priesthood. They didn't realize that along the way they'd also encounter all the things that I think Facebook and TikTok and all these other organizations, which you've worked in, have started to realize is that there's a there's a there is many bad things that mm -hmm. can happen as good. And I love that you brought up the connecting and all of these things. I'm still one of those people who's an optimist about the end result of us all being connected. But the, the, the conversation that I had with this person was after they'd started printing Bibles and that kind of thing, it wasn't very long until people started printing, you know, folios on how to catch and burn witches and things like that, which obviously had a terrible in, impact on, you know, women especially, but on society in the Middle Ages. And suddenly the most uh, popular books or pamphlets were about witches and things like that. These are unforeseen consequences mm -hmm. of 
opening up the world to everybody. And I think everyone in the world is now starting to come to grips with the fact that there are also things we got to look out for. Yep. And it must have been at the time that you joined Facebook, these must have been things that kind of just started popping up. Yes, 100%. Wow. Yeah, that and hey, and how do you regulate and do you regulate mm. at all? And who does And, and who, who regulates? Um, so I would I'm not I wouldn't say I'm an expert in this, but like yourself, I'm very um, kind of deep and thinking about the un unintended consequences of these brilliant right uh, changes and uh, evolutions. And of course, we hear people talking about these things, exactly the same things with ChatGPT now, artificial intelligence, etc. That's one of the reasons that I wanted to be involved in these organizations within the context of culture and leadership and behavior, because you can have the best product, the best app with all the good intention. But then, mm. as you said, people are going to use it in different ways. So how do you initially influence how um, the people that create these products, what, what, the, what is the vibe, what is the environment, making it positive, good, caring, and then how can you influence how these products get used? Right? And I, you spoke about spirituality before, because I am I would guess uh, you could say spiritual. I believe in, in kind of Jewish wisdom. Everything has a spark of goodness, has great potential in it. Everything has potential for light. Uh, everything, mm. depending how we use it. Right. And I hopefully find my mission as a way of taking whatever is in front of me and trying to find that spark, trying to find that light and then ignite it and make it bigger and bigger. So how do you... How do you figure culture? Because it really has become something that people have only been paying attention to as a subject yeah. very recently. You know, it was sort of, how does your company function? Do people mostly get along? What do you stand for? Then it yeah. became about values and about mission statements and yes. all of that stuff. And now it's very much about culture. Yeah. And I think everybody understands the concept. But when you started off, that wasn't as clear. You had to kind of hack your way through a jungle and figure out, well, there's going to be a downstream effect here too, because if we do this right, it'll show other companies how to do it right. If we get it wrong, they're going to say it was our fault. Mm. So there was a lot, lot of pressure there too. How do you comprehend the idea of culture and, and what did you start to do to influence culture positively? So let me try to like um, almost like simplify it. Mm. My, my background is in sociology and psychology. Right. Uh, I have three university degrees in that area. Actually, I started my career in the army. I was an officer in the Israeli Defense Forces. So from the very beginning of, let's say, my career out of school, I experienced people, right. hundreds, thousands <clears throat> of people getting together uh, within the context of an organization, whether it's the army or another organization. And I was fascinated to see how do people know how to interact? How do they know the rules of engagement? How do they know how to be in the context of whatever company it was? And then I studied and I realized that there's, you know, there's science about people getting together. So when you said before about culture, culture happens. If you like it or not, the moment you have three, four, five people around, there is a culture. The values are established. What you can or can do as a as an owner, as a founder of a company, or even as a family leader, I see myself as a let's say a, the CEO of my family, if you sure. can say, yeah. you can try to influence it. You can try to influence the culture because it's going to happen anyway. Mm. Now there are companies, I think you hinted to that, that say we are caring, resilient. Um, thoughtful, brave, courage, courage is all. They just choose a and bunch they put of, it and they, they, of good they choose words. It. Sometimes just the words like, that people won't have a yeah, problem with. And you feel like they're Googling them and then they can put it on a beautiful <laughs> or ChatGPTing them and then they're putting it on a beautiful yeah. board. But then when you enter the company, immediately when you get to the reception, the vibe isn't of welcoming mm -hmm. or the vibe isn't of care. No one's looking at you, mm -hmm. right? So that is fake. That is false. And people will know that immediately. What is really important is that if you're if you're a company founder, if you're you're a member of a company, and you want to influence what the culture looks like, it has to be truly authentic, and it has to be real, and it has to connect to the company's business mission, right? The strategy, what the company is really here to do. Now, I know that there's more talk about culture now, also around uh, cancel culture. Right. And, the, mm. and the, it goes wider than the, just companies. It's right. about how people interact and, with and, each other. And Michal, I'm sure you're also like you couldn't not be aware of the fact that everything has become political, too. 
So stuff that was, you know, uh, a, a very simple discussion, like, for example, are we profitable in this silo of the business? Uh, where can we cut costs here? Those are not so simple anymore mm. because now you have to consider whether or not there are going to be political consequences for these things. And and people are, I think they're, they're very fearful to tread incorrectly mm. and end up not only costing the company money, which you can see on a balance sheet, but we all know about the, the cost culturally, now this is mean, you know, the, the society at large, um, for companies that don't really know how to navigate these territories. And that's also a risk yeah. because if you want to always, always get it right, then you may freeze. You're not going to yeah. do, you're not going to take action. One of the things I loved about Facebook, and this is Facebook 10 years ago when I really, it was like the the hype that it felt so positive and, and um, uh, there's so much potential of really connecting people around things that they care about and believe in. One of the main mantras of Facebook internally was fail harder. So one, my book is called What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid? And that's taken from another Facebook mantra. So when I entered the company in the first day, I saw a big poster saying, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And then just by side that poster, there was a poster that said, um, fail harder. And it wasn't just on the wall. Hmm. Going back to what you said about um, culture, the message that came from Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg back then truly was, we, you're here, we trust you, you've been selected because you have the talent, the skills, the background, allow yourself to get over your fears, be creative, try new things, and if you fail at least fail harder, meaning failing that you gave 100%, that you did your best, that you tried your best. It's painful to fail, but we will fail. If we want to grow, if we want to improve, there's no other way than failing. And this um, normalizing failure and normalizing the fact that we're not always going to get everything right, I think is actually quite uh, missing at the moment uh, in many companies. Because, mm. of this, because of this tension that you mentioned, you know, every, every, every decision feels political. There's always a risk. So we're kind of waiting but we well, I mean, wait. there are whole departments now for like risk analysis and risk assessment. And they aren't doing things like looking at just the political situation of your country. I mm. mean, in this country, for example, we've always got, there's always some reason to worry about things. I suppose it's true for every country, yeah. right? And for every company. But it's also about kind of managing expectations. Mm. And, you know, the staff at a company like Facebook or TikTok I mean, in some ways, you guys broke down so many barriers in people's minds. Now, post-COVID, we all kind of have an idea about working at home or having a different work environment. But before that, we've got to remember it was totally different. 100%. And you guys were already bringing in bean bags and nap rooms and libraries. And there was a, you know, a menu of stuff that you could have at lunchtime. And if you needed to stay at the office, there were mental health people around and all kinds of things that are now pretty much on the agenda for every company. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, when you guys came up with that, it wasn't the, the, the usual. It wasn't, it wasn't even available in most yeah, places. I can't take credit for that. I love the beanbags. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, we finally met the person who introduced not, the beanbags. I'm bag. not the beanbags person. Uh, and I have posture issues, so I've never really used them. But, you know, and, and even those things were looked at in different you know angles. And even today, you, you know, sometimes... I felt, oh, maybe this is too much. I felt a bit of privilege. Like there's like five flavors of uh, granola. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's too much as well. I think it's also about finding balance. And today things... Well, I think a lot of those people have learned that lesson the hard yeah, way. Yeah, so there's been a correction and a, you know, a course correct. Mm. I, think, um, I think that many of us are feeling, and I will include myself, um, that there's too muchness going on. There's a lot going on, right? When we, leave our, when we live our lives now... We have to consider everything, what comes out of our mouth, because we want to be thoughtful and we want to be caring and we want to understand different people and meet them where they are. We want to make the right choices, as you said, right? We want to be sensitive. We want to grow. We want to succeed. We care about what we look like on the outside, from the inside. There's so many expectations, and that's why we're anxious, because we're always worried. And I'll speak for myself, because I don't want to speak, you know, I don't know, maybe your listeners are the most relaxed, you know, including <laughs> yourself. But I feel we now, going back to culture, many of us are living in a culture of too muchness, which can evoke anxiety because we are expecting a lot and we want it now. 
even when it comes to emotional things like you know getting our marriage in a better place or mm. learning how to be better with our children or community we want it now we want a couple of sessions we want to watch we want to watch a series and boom be a, be a better parent it, it doesn't work that way no and it is i mean this too muchness i just want to go to your book for a second um because i don't know how many people ask themselves that question every day but what would you do if you weren't afraid so many people have thousands and thousands of inhibitions and concerns worried about people they don't even know and what those people think of them and you know again i heard this brilliant thing the other day someone said about you know 3 days after you've died people are going to stop thinking about you most of them there'll still be a few who really how many days you know, two or three days i mean maybe 10 maybe 15 yeah. in some people's cases as soon as you walk away from yeah. that you know they kind of get into a zone that you don't really go into that often mm. they say a grave is only ever visited like two generations after and then it kind of isn't so what's holding you back mm. if you zoom out enough make those dreams and ambitions yes. come true don't be afraid the things that you're afraid of are so silly by comparison and they're all in your head mostly it's in the head but it is meaningful i i chose to call my book what would you do if you weren't afraid my fear in my younger years let's say the first 20 years of my life my fear was actually influenced um because i was and am a third generation holocaust survivor and i was brought up by my grandparents and uh, all of them survivors and my parents um of course were with us as well and my grandmother khana she uh, jumped off the train uh, that was on the way to auschwitz oh my God. she lost her father her mother her brother and sister and uh she jumped off the train she was shot at she was injured um but she survived and she um was the person that influenced me most in my young age and she used to force feed me chicken soup so i can be fuller and stronger with a when the next horrible thing happens um my first childhood memories is hiding um tuna cans all over the house and the attic so when something horrible comes we can just pack that and run away so that is trauma huh? that is that is trauma that is fear and that's my story but everyone has their own baggage and story connected to fear right and for years i was i couldn't sleep at night uh i i was ready for the sorry to say it sounds horrible for the nazi to come i had an escape plan um and you know i took that to my i used wow. to check that my parents and, 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 and they say that there's an epigenetic effect yes. of this stuff right i mean they've done a lot of research on holocaust survivors and their families and there's this there's this guilt as well which you know i think has been written about and discussed at length but is worth reflecting on is that the ones who survived almost feel bad about having survived because they lost so many people they cared about that didn't but then they also transfer that fear that anxiety that trauma to their children and their grandchildren which is clearly what happened in your case yes. either in a very real physical material sense or through the genes through the yeah. behavior and and that stuff's very real it's real and in a way <laughs> you still live it today and again mm. this is my but everyone has their story right of either you know their childhood story as we said survival story i did everything i could not to pass it to my children but my children are still carrying this really it's yes i i i'm i try of course i speak about it in a holocaust memorial day but i try it not to be in the dna of our family but it still is isn't that funny <laughs> funny though it's it's the uh, it's the finest line to walk because I'm one of these people who's a big fan of history and I think it's important to remember stuff especially things where human beings have really let the whole race down. You know, the Holocaust is a stunning example of just how bad things can go and I don't think it would be a very smart move for us to forget about that mm, or to memory hold this in any way. No matter what your culture background or your connection to World War 2 Europe Judaism yeah. whatever it might be it's a good lesson for humanity and we should keep it up front but you also don't want it to become a preoccupation that holds you back yep. right and these are big you spoke about guilt mm. so at the age of 28 29 i was in a very low place within myself i had so much to be happy about gareth like i was successful at work and all these degrees and i had a family inside i felt empty and i started having really bad thoughts and i was so ashamed of myself because i was the same age of like my grandmother khana when she jumped off the train jumped off the train so you can imagine wow. i am living in london safe beautiful house family job secure my grandmother nothing mm. and and i was 
depressed. And I remember looking at myself in my mirror and I said, Michal, what is wrong with you? Why are you feeling so empty? Why can't you be happy? You have everything that your grandmother ever could ever, ever like wish for or dream of. But I think it's connected to the world maybe that we live in today, these expectations, these never never feeling really fulfilled. And it was really at the age of 39, 10 years ago, when I discovered Jewish wisdom. So I'll tell you about myself. I grew up in Tel Aviv uh, in a secular Jewish home, um, knowing that I'm Jewish, but not really connected to my faith. Culturally. Culturally. Also, when you're in Israel you know, let's say the Day of Atonement or uh, the Jewish New Year, it's it's happening, right? It's like all around. There's no awareness. And also my house is not a religious house. But then in the age of uh, 39, uh, and this is a long story, and if whoever wants to hear it can read the in the book, I discovered Jewish wisdom. I discovered that is Ju- there is Jewish psychology. So I studied psychology. I started Freud and Melanie Klein and beyond. And I thought that like psychology started from them, right? Well, I mean, <laughs> you've got 5,000 odd years of, of, of wisdom to draw on here. And, and it starts right in the beginning. And I had no access to that. And I tested all I went when I was looking for help for my thoughts, for, my, for myself. I explored so many isms, Buddhism, Taoism. Mm. I never considered Judaism. My own ism. I think it's I was right there so on your doorstep and you just didn't see it. But huh? I think it happens often to us that when we have a certain life experience, we only want to look for solutions that are different to our upbringing, different to our heritage. We sometimes move countries, we move physically, emotionally, everything we can. And sometimes <laughs> the best thing is actually to return to what is in our backyard. So, so what, did it, what did it do for you at 39 that that depressed younger woman didn't have? Did it fill spaces and gaps that you you, you were aware were empty? Mm. Did it give you direction? What mm. kind of things did it do for you? I think I learned a few things at the same time, and it didn't happen in a second, right? It, it, Gareth, it wasn't like, oh my, like the, I saw no, no, light, everybody right? thinks it's like this no. Damascus moment where suddenly yeah. everything's converted. It, it was a journey. I think a few things happened. One is that I reached kind of this pre-40 age, which is an interesting age, and I kind of like that age. I know some people don't like aging. I actually don't mind. Uh, well, if you look like you, it's like, you know, it's fortunate. <laughs> so, you know, that kind of level. And then I think I discovered a few things. One, I discovered that I have a soul, uh-huh. a godly soul, like you, like everyone here. And my father held a very um, leading position in Israel for many years. He was the chief forensic pathologist. He was the chief coroner, especially in these years um, when Israel was going a lot of, uh, fortunately, intifada, terror attacks. Yeah. And I was exposed to death. My, I, my eyes saw bod- a body in a very young age. So for me, you see, I grew up, death was just the most immediate thing. And once when I was about seven or eight, after a big terror attack, I asked my father, is it possible that in the bigger body, there is a smaller body that when the bigger body gets, sorry, that when the bigger body gets buried, the smaller body inside continues because that's the body that contains all the love that I have for my grandparents and all the respect. And my father said, no, we're only body. He's a scientist. He's a scientist. He's a professor in medicine. When the body ends... It's Everything over. ends. And I don't know if clinically you can say that a seven-year-old can feel depressed, but I, I remember in my essence, in myself, feeling something shut. inside, And I had no one to speak with about this, these things because I grew up in a very clinical, wow. academic home. Then at the age of 38, 39, I, I, I suddenly read uh, uh, Hebrew uh, literature, J- Jewish script, and I realize... We all have a godly soul. There's a, there is something that the whole idea of having a body is to contain the soul, to help the soul come to life, do meaningful things. And, and regardless of what my eyes had seen, my nose has smelled, the stories that I've heard, regardless of all that, those things that I thought that damaged me, I realized that my soul is as pure as it was in the very beginning and has endless potential. And it gave me a lot of hope. And at the same time, I started reading Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. What a book. Life-changing book. What a book. And then I connected those two and I realized that I became too self-obsessed. Even I felt that I became too obsessed with my own anxiety and my own this. I just want to stop you for a second because this is a big problem we're dealing with in the world right now. And and we can get back to company culture. And I like where we're heading in your story. But if you look at how many young people are depressed and anxious and are searching for meaning – 
so much of it, I think, has to do with either a self-absorption and unhealthy kind of navel-gazing, which can only make you unhappy because you keep seeing your own insufficiencies, you keep seeing your own uh, inability to measure up to whatever crazy idea you have you should be in your head. Um, and and this thing of, of having a soul, I mean, I kind of, I was one of these angry, militant atheists for a long while. I thought that was the cleverest position to take, right? The smartest thing you could possibly do is to observe the evidence and say, well, there isn't enough for a God. And it's amazing how you go through this journey, which, I mean, is nowhere parallel to yours. But you think about all these countries all over the world where religion is on the decline and misery is on the way up. And I'm not going to tell people that they have to find a religion or that they must believe that they have a soul, but I think they're linked. I think that door that shut when you were seven years old is probably what happens in a lot of modern societies. They don't know where to search for meaning. Mm. Do you mm. agree? I, I agree to everything you said. I think that it's, and, it, and, and there's more to that is, and, and I, I'm like you, I'm not here to convert. I'm not no. here to uh, inspire people to go to church or synagogue or mosques, but there is a role for this. It helps us connect to each other because often it comes with, with a sense of community, right? And one of all of these faiths, they believe in giving others. Whichever faith it talks about, whether charity or tzedakah, that it's healthy for us. Instead of looking in, it's healthy look to out. look for other. It's healthy to care. Yeah, they're one of the best. And some, when I was in my lowest place, I started volunteering. And also as a young person, when I felt really bad at, at high school, I started volunteering in women's shelter. And those were my best days. Do you know what? Because I wasn't obsessed with what I look like. Am I popular enough? Yeah. Am I as skinny as the, the rest of the girls? Why am I? No, I just thought about yeah. that girl that I took for two hours when her mom was staying in the shelter. We went to a shopping center. We came back. I needed those two hours much more than that girl needed them. So I'm with you today. One of the best things, and I, that's why I push my kids to think for others, do for others. It's healthy mm -hmm. to try and spend a little bit less time about. No, I'm not saying yes, self awareness, care. Sure, of course. Um, but actually, the soul needs more than like a day in the spa, or you know, it, the soul needs something meaningful. And I, Victor Frankel, I, I'm sometimes I get so frustrated that he didn't get the recognition that he deserved. Um, you know, back in the days. Um, he learned, and also in Auschwitz, because he was in Auschwitz himself, that resilience is developed through searching for meaning. And by the way, meaning changes. Sometimes when I, when I coach people, they say, but I don't know what my big purpose is. It doesn't have to be a big purpose that you can put on your social media, that you write on your LinkedIn. Purposeful could be to support someone else that needs you today. Purposeful can be to go and study something new. Purposeful could be to realize that what you're doing today is not fulfilling you and you want to make a change. That is meaning. It's meaningful. Yeah. So, so how does this link back to social media? Because I feel like that is an engine so often for the navel gazing, for the likes, the attention-seeking, the self-absorption, and the meaninglessness, frankly, because people will get caught up in other people's lives, people they sometimes don't even know, and that's bound to leave you unhappy. Yep. And it adds to the problem. It doesn't subtract from it, which goes back to how we started this conversation about how the unintended consequences of yep. social media. This was obviously on your mind, your own story, of course. and the fact that you now had to guide this company uh, and therefore billions of people all over the world to help them overcome the obvious pitfalls of this and to find the, the good, to pull out the useful stuff. I think one of our greatest challenges these days is to learn how to facilitate ourselves internally. What does that mean? It means that, so I have two teenage children and two younger children. And I often get asked, so how do you, do, 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 do you let them go on social media? Do you not let them? I also live a traditional Jewish life. We keep Shabbat. We keep, I, I often confuse people, right? Mm. Like I, I live the, in the in-between. I believe in living in the in-between. I believe in taking from the different worlds what's meaningful. Sure. What I teach my children, and in a different way, that's why I try to do in, when I work in companies, is be very clear about your values and be very clear about what does good for you internally and what doesn't. Jewish wisdom tells us that the eyes are the window to the soul. And I often tell my kids, whatever you consume on YouTube, on Netflix, on TikTok, that goes straight inside you. Be aware, does this make me feel good? 
Does this make me feel more confident, more clear about who I am or not? And I can tell you, Alyssa, I'm, I'm not, I, I, I had this phase 10 years ago when I was in my low place. I used to look at people that I went to school with and look at, at their lives and say, oh, they seem happier than me or they seem more successful than me. And mm. I'll be honest, maybe I enlarged a, vid, a, a, a picture of one of the girls that I, right? Like, let's be honest. And I sat down and I said, Michal, you're 39, 38, you're a mother of three. Are you really sitting here enlarging a, a, a picture of someone you went to the army for like 20 years ago? And then I stopped. But it self-management takes a lot for us. That's why we talk about resilience. But it starts from within. Social media will continue. Mm. Tons of content sure. will continue. The question is, how can we be super clear about who we are, what are our values, and then utilize those platforms for the best? I found Jewish wisdom on Google. I Googled depression, anxiety, fear, and then I Googled joy. And for some reason... I googled, I added the word Judaism, and it took me, the search uh, took me to, um, led me to a professor in, psycholo in, in, in psychology that does research about the connection between faith and spirituality to mental health. So I and there found, is a connection. And there is a connection. Yeah. Yeah. So I found this through social media. So, you know, we just have to make good use of the tools that we have. So... Then let's talk about something that's a little bit controversial because I know you can field these kinds of questions. You do all the time. Um, the people in the world who do have that either religious or spiritual connection, that value system, are very different to the kind of people who work in social media and who work in Silicon Valley, for example. A lot of them may, may have different rules at home. They may be very conservative at home for all we know. I mean, like you said, you're, you know, a whole barrel of contradictions. All of us are in some way. But they profess to have other values about, you know, a very liberal and licentious society and all these kinds of things. Now, I'm pretty socially liberal, so I'm not really bothered by any of that. But some people see a contradiction in this. And some people say, well, you're kind of opening people up to the most destructive pathways, people who very often don't have any value system to be able to calibrate themselves against. And do you think that Silicon Valley, social media companies, you know, liberal left-wing kind of West Coast America has something to answer for here? I think it's a complex question that you're bringing up, and I'm not sure I'm qualified <laughs> to answer, you know, meaningfully. Going back to how we started our conversation, it's complicated, it's complex, different perspectives. Listen, I'm one of those Silicon Valley people as sure. well, right? I just happen to be living in London, but... Um, I did really work working at TikTok was in a you know a, a, an influential let's say you know position Huge. and really tried tried and, and hopefully did um, influence and I think I really believe people want good people want to um, they have this need to find solutions that are meaningful and good. And then, as you said, life happens. People get dis disappointed, have their own issues, aggressions, and then it can become messier. I think that as the one person that works in corporate, let's say myself, I would rather be working in these companies and trying to influence yeah, than sitting from the outside and kind of watching. And one of the reasons I joined TikTok it was more than three years ago, was because I realized that my daughter was on TikTok mm. and my daughter was consuming positive content, which is how to cook, which she never saw her mother do, and it's <laughs> for survival, and, and positive body imaging. So okay. again, I saw how meaningful it is when people consume positive content. And of course, there's always a risk that they consume. So it's all about education. I'm obsessed about education. I'm obsessed about education within companies. Mm. I know Microsoft do amazing work internally, keeping their strong values. The, the CEO of companies says that the C and the CEO is actually culture. It's not about like chief operating officer. It's about culture operating officer. His responsibility is the culture. How do people behave to each other? What kind of products they create? The more we see that, I think the better is our world. But people don't start companies for those reasons. They start NGOs for those reasons. But a company is a for-profit business usually. But, and, yep. and then they build in the culture afterwards. That's just the way it is. I mean, if, often. You know, if people develop a product or a service, they don't start very often. Now perhaps that's changing. But they don't start with that in mind. They start with, oh, I've got this great idea and I can make lots of money. And sometimes that's in conflict yep. with 
you know, again, if we look at social media companies, many people would say they're doing more bad in society. They're doing more that is creating unrealistic expectations in young girls, for example, creating opportunities for young girls to be bullied outside of school and outside of situations that didn't exist before. Um, and that that's bad. And of course, it's because they started as for-profit companies, which is totally explicable. Yeah. I think um, the, I think research tells us that 20 years ago, people left their companies because um, of their role. The role wasn't uh, uh, inspiring enough or challenging enough or a, a big enough for them. Then 10 years ago, we said that people leave companies because of, the, because of their managers. Today, we can see that people leave their companies because of the culture. Mm-hmm. So whether founders like it or not, they have to, for the success of their business, they have to consider culture. They have to make it one of the essential elements as they build companies. Otherwise, they'll have talent leaving them. Do you think that talent leaving is always a bad thing? Because you have to weed the garden. Uh, the, That's uh, also culture, culture, come horticulture. Yeah, you know, sometimes some people don't fit the culture. Correct. There's a term in kind of the world of human resources called regretted leavers. So if you have too many regretted leavers, i.e. people that they're, they're actually culture carriers, that the, that the company is proud for them to be part of the company. If you see those numbers going on, that should set alarm bells saying the people that we really want to be in our company and they represent who we are, what we live in, if they're, com- if they're leaving our company, something's wrong. Of course, you'll have always leavers, non-regretted ones that they didn't, you know, just it wasn't right for them and for the company. Yeah. And I mean, especially if you've seen poor old Mark Zuckerberg and I mean, a lot of people don't like him for whatever reason, a lot of people do, but trying to explain to Congress, I mean, a bunch of old people, how social media works and very many of them have no idea. And then part of what he does is to explain that, you know, sometimes there is going to be a tyrant in one of these positions. They just don't know it until it's too late. And that person wants to shut down other people's free expression or direct the conversation in a certain way. It's bound to happen in any company. Mm. I, I don't know, it, it, I probably know exactly like yourself about Mark Zuckerberg's journey, but I think he too evolved with his perspective, with his approach. I think initially it was about believing that the product, the platform can be completely neutral. Just let it be, you know, with very little um, kind of managing it. Uh, but I think Mark and Facebook evolved and, you know, there's more regulation, there's more managing, there's more facilitation of the content on. I think it's a healthy process. But these things take time because Facebook boomed, right? And sometimes we had to, you spoke about Conrad, like there had to be like a catch up. And I do think that the founders and the managers of these companies are accountable, responsible in the leadership positions and they have to make it happen. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that from you because you know more about them than I do. But TikTok, for example, I mean, I'm, I'm not on, for better or worse. Maybe I'm just too old. You're but, not. You're younger, well, you're younger uh, than me. I'm I not, checked. I, I'm not like, uh, <laughs> you know, jonesing to get onto TikTok. But the fact is, TikTok takes up an enormous amount of young people's time. And I wonder how much of it is productive, like the stuff that your daughter's learning about. Mm you know, uh, body image and uh, cooking and all kinds of other, maybe they're really useful skills. I mean, I have seen, you know, just because they get passed on, a lot of videos for people who've got profound things to say and very useful stuff. How could you, by joining TikTok, influence that positivity rather than keep the the negative spiral that so many people are putting out there and so many people are are addicted to mm. as part of the whole thing. So, so just to clarify, my role at TikTok and also at Facebook was internal. So right. that was about how employees experience the company, the people that build these products, right. how they experience the company within, rather than the you know the end users uh, that sure. actually sure. But you, I mean, it, it kind but, of has but there, a, a knock-on effect, right? But there is there is of course an interlink and, and connection. I think that if a company is very clear about what it's here to do, um, why and how it adds value to the world. I re- I'm telling you, I was there at Facebook in this time when the mission was about making the world more connected, smaller. There was a sense of doing something meaningful. Yes, unintended consequences, Cambridge Analytica, right? We've been through all of that. I worked on the company at that time. Um, but, you know, 
And hopefully the company corrected itself um, since. My role working within, within companies connected to the company culture is how to make sure that we're all aligned to the company culture, to the company mission, sorry, to the strategy. How mm. Whatever we do, whether it's marketing or sales or HR or IT or designing the product, it doesn't matter what you do, that you do it connected to the, to the greater good and to the, and, and to the mission. And that means to have great managers. One of the things that I care deeply about is upskilling and coaching managers. Often you would see in tech companies, people that were brilliant in tech, whatever they were doing, right? Software engineers, designers, and then they grow and they have this opportunity to manage people. And often actually their emotional intelligence, their connection with people is less developed to their tech ability. Especially men. Also men, all everyone. So how can you help people grow, right, in their different managers grow? Yes, their tech skills, but also their people skills. That's where I often come in and get more involved. Help people discover not just what am I or who am I as a software engineer or a marketeer. Who am I as a manager? Someone that is responsible for the well-being, the success, and the growth of the people around me, of my team. That's huge. That's a huge responsibility, and I, I care about that deeply. So you you already hinted at, and I'm glad that you brought it up and not me because I feel bad every time I bring it up. But AI is coming in and changing a lot of industries, changing a lot of workplaces, and changing the culture in places too in unforeseen ways. Um, many people will be replaced. Uh, not everybody. There's always going to be room for everyone in the economy. There's always going to be something that people can do, um, and that will give them a sense of meaning from a work point of view. It may not give them an overall sense of a you know a great purpose, but a lot of the the things that have complicated the workplace, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but you know, people are talking about ESG and diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how companies have to now accommodate many different points of view, many different mini cultures and multi-cultures within the company culture. All of that has made it quite onerous to navigate for managers, but also for employees, for staff. If AI comes in and does some of those jobs better and doesn't need to be managed from a culture point of view exactly the same way as humans do, because we're much more, you know, um, fickle perhaps and sometimes more deep and uh, sensitive, um, how do you think that's going to change things? That's the seven million pounds question. (laughs) I'll I'll answer in snippets, okay, because I don't don't have one holistic answer. one of the most looked after ability in the not so far future is our people that are able to make meaningful eye contact, like the one I'm making with you now. Mm. We are so used to communicating on our devices screens. and our screens, <clears throat> and we we we're kind of we have to learn how to learn to read body language, right? Do you think that young people, by the way, have have lost that ability? I don't. I, I sometimes I, I I go. I see my my one of my kids at Starbucks in London, and they're all. <laughs> They're at Starbucks, which seems like a social, oh, everyone having their frappuccinos and whatever, but they're on their phones. So I asked my son, but you're going to Starbucks with five friends, but you're on your phones. And often they text each other, let's be honest, right? Right. They message, they send videos. But it's so wrong of me to criticize that. Okay. Right? Because I should be curious about that. Sorry, that's my Israeli accent. Instead of criticizing something that looks different to me, because if I would go with my four friends to Starbucks, I'd like to chat with them and look into their eyes, right? But he or them are more comfortable now maybe chatting about certain things, but physically being in the same place. And instead of criticizing that, instead of saying, oh, our youth is going south, to say, you know, interesting, that's happening, right? This is a dynamic. We can't can't just suddenly wish for it to be different either. It's not going to go away. But, but, But the thing is, how do we still help them have that eye contact, the ability to read how someone is feeling, not just by their what they're writing on the emojis that they're using. Emojis are huge. When I worked for TikTok, we communicated through emojis. Also think about the language barrier. Yeah. Emojis was right. the way to communicate. And you can get confused by that as well. Oh, and, and we're not even getting into things like irony and sarcasm. Exactly. Which, again, Passive ac- aggressive. And across cultures, that can get very Cross messy. So if you don't use the little laughing face, you're not, Ex- you know, you're being serious and it's aggressive. And Ex- So I tell my kids, look, try, and that's why I love Shabbat. 
Oh, so, yes. I, you know, I'm so glad you brought this up. Because <laughs> that's why I love Shabbat. Listen, I, we started keeping Shabbat maybe, I don't know, nine years ago. Shabbat is the only day of the week when no one is on anything. No laptop, no iPhone, no nothing smart. And we actually practice interacting with each other. And I'm telling you, initially, it was hard. Of course, it must have been we impossible. We sat around people, the table. Some people can't be without that that phone for like uh, five minutes, my let alone kids, a day. And when we have guests, my friends' guests, out of respect, they don't bring their phones. After an hour, I feel they're like they're itchy, itchy. <laughs> and and I was like, "Oh, are you okay? Are you okay, Zoe?" And she's like, "No, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm just a bit tired. Do you do you miss your iPhone?" And she's like, "Yes." But Michal, it's also, and I've noticed this with families that do these things, mostly the Jewish families I know, but also, you know, some other families who have one night, for example, where they all get get together for dinner and they catch up with each other on their lives. And they ask, how are you doing? What are you up to? Who are your friends? Where are you going this next week? Um, You know, all the, the questions that people, and it's in person. Yeah. No matter what happens, that's what they do on a Friday night. And I think... Good, because that at least gives you a place to go back to no matter what happens in that big, scary world outside. You know where home is, and you know these people care about you. You can connect with them in a very real, physical, uh, material sense, and then you go about your business. And some people don't have that anchor. It's going back to self-management, self-facilitation, to know what's good for you and for your family. And I'm with you. I have so many friends. They don't, they're not Jewish. They, it's not about Shabbat, but they make an anchor of one dinner, one something. Sunday lunch, Doesn't, whatever it is. Whatever yeah. you do. Sure. You're, doing, you're also doing a favor to your children. Ten years ago when I was asked uh, by my friends, so what, should I, what do you recommend, what do you suggest that our children study at university? I used to say software engineering, um, you know, becoming a lawyer. Today I say a psychologist, a social worker. They're on demand. Today in the UK, you need to wait three months to see a child, psychotherapist, psychiatrist, social worker... They're on demand exactly for what the reasons you're saying. Kids are the chi- are young. The young people I aren't happy. Proxy parents as well, because so, the parents are doing such a terrible job. Listen, I think I, I want to assume that everyone does. Listen, we're all going to make mistakes as parents. <laughs> I always already regret so many things I've been doing in the last it's not a seventy science, years. It's right. not sure. But but what I'm saying is today, going back to the AI, I think we actually have to put more emphasis on community, on giving. And looking at each other in, kind of in the eye, connecting, reading body language, spending time together, doing good, volunteering. I, I think it could be potentially an antidote to the other things that are going on. And a bit of truth, like a little bit of honesty, not presenting your life on Instagram mm. as being as great as it. Just leave some stuff out. Keep some stuff private. Mm. Keep a little bit for you and your husband or wife, you and your children, that's important too because people are in such a sharing mode these days that I think because we're all content creators in some way, shape, or form, we've forgotten that maybe everyone's content creating, there's no audience, in which case, why are you bothering? You know, <laughs> just rather you. just live your life. And I see these people on a holiday in an amazing place looking at something truly fantastic and they're putting a screen between them and it. I think that's kind of just, sad, you yeah. know? Yeah, but it's, it, everyone has their own needs as well. Yeah, sure. But I, I think we also, we've, we've got a little bit soft. I mean, like there are parts of the world where it's not so soft. And you mentioned Israel right now, the oh, Ukraine. Israel. Yes. You know, there are places where people have very big existential threats to their existence. And I think they have a different kind of appreciation to life than a depressed teenager in San Francisco, for example. I think existential threat could be also within the world. As you said before, it's in the head that it feels like is an, an internal existential threat. Um, and I think many, many of us are going through that. And the best thing to do is obviously treat yourself, you know, whatever it is, psychotherapy, medication, etc. But also find the space in your life and the time to focus on any other cause that is not only you, as well as looking after yourself. Yeah, what do you think of the fact that everybody, it's become almost trendy for people to all have some mental health problem now? Like, I, I, I don't mean this in some facile way. I, I do know that there are very genuinely people who are struggling, and this may be the first generation where we're able to discuss these things openly. I've always been very pro-mental health and, you know, being honest about what's going on. But I think 
it's almost become like an identifier. You know, people started putting he, him, she, her pronouns into their biographies, and now they're kind of putting ADHD sufferer mm. or, you know, I'm somebody who's got depression and anxiety. And, of course, a lot of them, it must be the case and it might be true. Um, I'll always assume that that is the case. I'm not going to assume that they're pretending, but it's become like a bit of social cachet and almost a form of an identity which has taken the place of personality and character. Mm. I think that I think that people have a need. I'll speak for myself um, <laughs> to feel that we belong, that we are seen, that we're understood, um, that we can be ourselves. And I, as someone that was for many many years hiding many elements of herself, I actually felt quite free to be able to start and also in the book be able to share. I have bad thoughts. You see these degrees and the success, but inside there is a gap. There is an external persona and a real internal persona. And there was a big gap between them. And that was the scary gap. That was the black hole. That was mm. fe felt very, very uncomfortable. I think the more we help people have one persona, that they don't have to fake it. They don't have to pretend. They can be themselves thoughtfully. I have an allergy for the obsession with... Um, Uh, how do you call it? Like authenticity. When, when authenticity goes too far, when you're being yourself but hurting others, making others feel uncomfortable. I think you should be, one should be authentic, thoughtfully, be themselves, but think about how can, how can I be myself but in relation to you, mm. right? How can I be myself in the context of knowing who you are? How can I bring myself to you? And I think that's maybe the fine tuning that maybe we're missing now, be yourself, but be yourself in the context of community, of society, of others. Be honest about who you are, but think about how can you help others understand you better. And sometimes it needs a bit of tuning. Yeah, I think that's a very smart way of looking at it. I, I, I mean, there's so much about this company culture thing that we could get into. And I, I know you've got limited time and I'm looking forward to hearing you talk more going to dinner tonight where you'll be talking. But the... The idea that the company is also replacing a bunch of things that are missing. Mm. You know, a company becomes part of someone's identity if that's a really big part of their life. And for most people, you spend an inordinate amount of time in the office or thinking about work. Um, but companies now, and, and this is a criticism I have, they're expected to be a mom, a dad, a healthcare provider, a social security provider, a welfare provider, a meal provider, a place to sleep provider. And it's infantilizing a lot of people. And this is nobody's fault. It's just a fact of the evolution of business too, that suddenly all these roles, which are not a company's, are being imposed on the company merely because the company has the resources perhaps mm -hmm. to deal with these problems. So we've got very broken, very traumatized people who are being brought into these environments and then these things are kind of expected as part of the package. And that might not be why the company exists. It's not an NGO. It isn't a UN yep. you know, conglomerate. It isn't some multinational corporation that's actually about feeding schemes or any of that stuff. It might just be a for-profit business. I care deeply about the subject that you're touching on, right? From wearing a culture perspective um, hat. When I work in companies and I have teams that I lead, I, I do feel a really strong connection to the people on the team and they do often become my friends. However, I'm they're not my family. No. They're not. The reason I think they become and if they stop like working, family. And if they stop working there, they might not also be your friends for very long. <laughs> Thank God I've always stayed in good contact, but I hear what you say. No, it's possible. I think one of the reasons that people could project these feelings that often we have to our family, let's say if we're lucky and we have a good family relationship, is because we actually find meaning in our jobs. No, no, but I'm, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying these people didn't have a family. The, 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 the company becomes a proxy for a family they didn't have. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm saying sometimes… Not a positive thing. But, so, so, but, but sometimes, let's say people, they want to fill themselves with things, right? Mm. With love, with trust, with feeling that you belong somewhere. We, we, this is human nature we, with icon, right? We want to feel safe, seen, part of, important. So if, if, if you get it at work, then you'll start developing those like family feelings, right? Naturally. And sometimes the founders or the managers, they actually want you to feel that way, right? But what if they don't? What if they just don't want the headache of a whole bunch of needy people 
who they're now catering to emotionally. They're helping them with their feelings, helping them connect so to other people. So companies should be able then to cater for that as well. For someone that wants who to don't come want and. That? Yeah, of course, there's people that want to come to work and do whatever they want, whether from home or the office, and do their best and be their best version at work. And then they want to like put this line and, 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 and that's it. And I think that's a very healthy perspective as well. And I think any company should cater, you use the word diversity, for that diversity. And some people want to hang out after work. I was one of those people that never stayed for drinks after work. Mm. Maybe I was considered as less fun and less engaging. Well, they or think you're aloof or yeah, whatever. And, and I, I, I sometimes felt guilty. But to be honest, I made the decision, I'd rather go back home and not have drinks. That, that was my preference. And I was very lucky to work in companies that was never judged for that. So ideally, companies should be able to cater for everyone, whatever their preference, as long as they're doing their jobs and they're committed and they're respectful to, to, to be themselves in the context of the workplace. So what do you think about working from home and what we've had since COVID? Because this has got a big impact on company culture. There are people in companies who love working from home and they're just as productive, and if, if not more so, uh, they don't need the environment of the office and they still feel part of everything. You get those people who could not survive yep. being on their own or being at home, maybe for various reasons. We've got to take into consideration the kids who, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to work when the kids are running around screaming. Um, maybe they don't have a lot of space at home for a little private area to work. Maybe they, uh, they, they just don't want to be at home because they need to create that gap between work and home. Yeah. What are your feelings about how that's changed and how it's changing? It's changing in the, every minute it's changing. I think just recently, I think a couple of days ago, I read that Mark Zuckerberg is doing a bit of a U-turn because Facebook was allowed to be, I think, uh, remote first or yeah. I don't remember. And now there's a requirement, and I don't have the specifics, to come more to the office and aiming for three days back. Snapchat, um, I think, went back to four or five days in the office for, right. for being more flexible. So um, I think, you know, TikTok, more days in the office for sure, uh, from what I can see and read. So I think we're different companies are exploring some of the companies their business model was based on actually fully remote. They don't have offices at all. They have very limited space. Um, you know, there's implications. People moved far away. The travel, the cost, it's complex and complicated. I think bottom line, what is on leaders' minds is are people being uh, creative when they're at home? Are people interacting and engaging with other in a, others in a meaningful way? And most of all, are, can we build trust when people are not interacting yeah. with each other. When I joined TikTok, I think it was about 90% of the company, maybe 95% of the company, I don't remember the numbers, were um, hired during COVID. These are, there was no return to office. All people were hired through. So my my task was to build culture between people that never interacted with each other. That must have been difficult. It was fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> but now you also get employees who say, well, I'll take a job, but if they don't give me three out of five days at home. I'm not interested. Correct. And that's maybe not a bad thing. I, I think, you know, I I think, think it's happening. It will companies. continue to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And listen, I could be one of those employees. I don't right. fancy going back to the office five days a week mm -mm. at all. <laughs> mm -mm. And I, I like dropping off my kids in the morning and making space in the afternoon to take them. I already got used to that and that they got used to it. Uh, going back, it's, it's fine tuning. It's a balance and having healthy conversations. Um, I, I'm very curious to see where Facebook and Twitter, well, Twitter we know, but where Facebook and, and, and TikTok and other companies will take it, how flexible they will be. They were flexible before flexible before COVID. Yes. Right? I worked for Facebook before COVID and it was full, very, very flexible. Mm -hmm. I, I'm curious to see what happens. But I also want to say that it's not just on, on the companies, right? I think managers that have teams, they have to mm. really lead uh, in a meaningful way and help people feel connected to each other, know each other, even if they're not in the same space. And it's critical. Otherwise, building trust will be more challenging. So one other thing quickly. The, the, the workplace has evolved and changed and mostly in a positive direction where people actually feel like they're not just a, a, a machine that's churning something out or putting in code or replying to emails or doing balance sheets or, you know, those kinds of things will increasingly be, be taken up by, by AI and by machines. But there are also those human interactions which used to be considered part of the package. Like a lot of people would meet their wife or husband at work. 
that's where they that's where they first got to know each other and then you know five ten years later they're married maybe even a shorter period maybe a bit longer it's very difficult for HR which is a part of culture in a big yeah, way I'm always part of HR to manage those kinds of things which obviously now you know we've got uh, certain people who just do not believe that work should be a place where you have any interpersonal communication apart from the professional. And then you get those people who think, no, no, it's got to be a sense of community. They've got to be ups and downs. There will be some things that are difficult to navigate. But people are so nervous now. And, and HR departments have just become like a, almost like a, a place that generates a, uh, an excuse if something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, like they'll stand up for the company if, for example, a romantic affair kicks up between two people and they'll be monitoring it just to make sure that the company isn't drawn into some sort of battle, especially in a litigious society like the United States. How do you navigate those sorts of things, not Uh, only as a business owner, but as as an employee? It's a huge subject, especially post, uh, and I don't know if you're referring to that, but like post Me Too. Post Me Too, yeah, yeah, sure, that's part of it, right? And and other movements. Um, So this is my very personal, so I'm pro- Boundaries. I believe that having clear boundaries of what is okay and not okay at home, in the workplace, mm-hmm. between people and communities, is actually very healthy. Because when, as a child, as, a, as an adult, when you know where the boundary is, when the line is, you actually feel more safe and you actually know where to operate, right? So it's boundaries and uh, regulations and rules and policies, I think, are overall a positive. Mm-hmm. Like everything else that we've discussed about today, how do you fine-tune it? How do you find balance? How do you keep that natural urge of someone to say to someone, you look wonderful today, without worrying, wait, am I harassing her? Oh boy, her? yeah. What if, yeah. What if she thinks we're, this we're is flirting? In it. We're in it now. Listen, I'm, the, I'm, I'm that person that only 12 years ago, one of my team said, oh, that's a Jewish nose. I heard about it, but I never saw one myself. That was 12 years ago in London in a leading advertising agency. I immediately covered my nose and I came back home and I said to my husband, do you think I should do a nose job? Right. So that person today wouldn't be able to get away with it. And that's a positive. Sure. Right. Absolutely. Um, And maybe even then, if I had, if I was more comfortable in my own skin, I would go and say that. By the way, I was her manager and I was HR. So it's like one of those funny situations. I also had a manager who said to me that I'm too emotional, maybe because I'm a woman and I'm Israeli and I should like move my hands less. And I, for <laughs> six months, I sat on my hands. I'm not kidding you. I worked for a bank wow. and for six months, because he took away my bonus from me, he said, I need to be less emotional and I'm not that emotional. Yes, I express how I feel. For six, for six months, I sat on my hands. I'm showing you how I did it. And then I got a promotion. And I got a a, a more senior role. Those things are not allowed. They're not okay. But yes, I think we need to find a way for people to compliment each other and say say something positive to each other without worrying too much. That's something that we're navigating within the HR world. And and there's a lot of of unhealthy gray that needs uh, um, navigating. I do believe that it's not long from now because our young generation are actually much clearer about this. My daughter, if I say something that is borderline not within what she thinks is okay or not okay, she'll immediately say something. So I actually think the younger generation, the ones that were born already into the lively you too, um, Me Too movement, etc., they ha- they, 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 and, and knowing that whatever they put on online, that's, that's going to stick to them forever, they ha- they're more aware, hopefully, of what comes out of their mouth. Again, they need our sure. help and all but of that. But undoubtedly, it also means that people will just avoid all interaction completely. And you'll have these people who just like they shut down because they're so scared of putting a foot wrong and getting to trouble with HR that they'll just say, uh, can I have this by five? Thanks. That's it. And that's the interaction. I don't think a manager should worry mm. about saying, uh, you know, the project that we spoke about yesterday, the submission of the presentation, the one that we need to send by five. Can you please get it by five? You're not, I, don't, I can't imagine a company when that is aggressive. Um, I think it's more about the when we say something to people about themselves that makes them feel uncomfortable. Well, even there, they start sometimes asking you to fulfill certain requirements as a colleague uh, at the same level they're at. So there's not a power thing necessarily, but now I want to be called they, them. 
and you forget one day and then it's a transgression, you know, and that's not like someone's going out of their way to hurt somebody. The world is evolving in many ways and we have to be very conscious about how we interact with people, 100%. We've been talking about that. And you can say that it's driven from one place of the world or to another or it, it, it's adding value or not, but we have to work with it, how to help people feel respected, understood, everyone, right? Um, and yeah, it's, 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 it's happening. Well, listen, I've learned a lot from you and I'm absolutely sure that this isn't the end of our conversation. Uh, we were meant to meet interview I was meant to interview years ago yes. I don't know why it didn't happen I think it might have been our fault but oh, it's, it's really no one's fault it, it should have happened today exactly like it did it's great to have you here and I'm really really interested in a lot of these things that you've uh, had to say today and I'm sure that there's plenty more in the book can so. I gift you a copy oh hell absolutely <laughs> I would like that very much Michal Ashman it is such a pleasure to meet you and thank you for coming to talk to us Thank you so much. It's been a huge pleasure and I'm not tired at all, even though I arrived two hours I'm ago amazed. from London. Gets off the plane and <laughs> she's here like, you know, no worries. No sleep, no worries. Thank you so much. Thank you.